content warning for murder, rape, homophobia, and mutilation. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. over. The age of free love and flower power long past. The Vietnam War and Watergate had come and gone. Divorce rates and drug use were skyrocketing. Corporations were consolidating their grasp on the global economy. And even as the Cold War continued to stretch out with no end in sight, geopolitics seemed to be getting increasingly unstable with brush fire wars sweeping through developing nations and terrorism the new threat. The world seemed to be on the brink of collapse. In Los Angeles, terrorists seize control of a corporate-owned skyscraper in the middle of a Christmas party. Things look grim, but there's something the bad guys don't know. A lone man with police training was in from out of town, hoping to reconcile with a loved one, and he was able to slip out when the shooting started. Now one man has to take on a terrorist cadre all by himself. That man's name is... Joe Leland? Well, gippy ki mother fudger. Hello, everyone. Welcome to What Mad Universe, uh, the tough-talking, hard-shooting podcast. I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hello. Hello, Phil. Uh, today, uh, we're talking about uh, a, a book from quite a bit later uh, in time than what we usually look at. Uh, a lot of what we focus on is uh, 19th and early 20th century stuff. Uh, but we're looking at a book from 1970, published in 1979, um, and uh, it's called "Nothing Lasts Forever." Uh, but the reason it's oh, by Roderick Thorpe. By Roderick Thorpe, yeah. And the reason people know it, though, or people, <laughs> the reason it will have an impact on people, though, is that it was adapted into a movie in 1988 that you may have heard of called uh, "Die Hard." Um, so we thought that would be kind of interesting to have a look at that one. Uh, just to see, obviously, the differences, because Die Hard has made a huge impact on uh, on <laughs> on pop culture. And Everything, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, we, and to prepare, now, the interesting thing about Never, Nothing Lasts Forever is that it is a sequel. Um, and thanks to Phil, we have <laughs> sort of managed uh, to see uh, the book to which uh, it was a sequel which was uh, called The Detective, uh, and it featured Joe Leland. He was the it was star from the of, late 60s, right? Right. It was 1966. Um, Joe Leland was the star of the novel, 1966. Uh, it was, as I say, by, as, you, as Phil said, by Roderick Thorpe. It was just called The Detective. It was a very slow-paced, character-driven and introspective novel without any real action, uh, and it was adapted into a movie starring Frank Sinatra in 1968. So, yeah, what what did you think of the movie, Phil? Uh, the detective movie? The detective, yeah. Let's just talk about the detective first. Yeah, because I didn't read the book because I didn't have time. It's it's very long. Yes, it is. And, and Adam me. said I didn't really have to, so I didn't. Yeah. Uh, not only but did I, he not have to, but he should not have because it is not a good book, in my opinion. Um, uh, I, I actually thought the movie was okay. It's not the best thing in the world, but it, had, um, it flowed well, and I... But I can't see how it would have been made into or how it could have worked as a 500-page novel. Uh, it just doesn't have enough story yeah. for that. I mean, it, it was it, no. Well, that is exactly it. And and please understand, it's a 500-page novel with very small type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, it's, it's tiny type. Tiny type compared to it. No, nothing lasts forever. Is probably 
a quarter of the length, if that, uh, because it's, you know, it's like 200 pages large type uh, versus, uh, you know, 500 pages very small type. Um, it's very meditative. So apparently Roderick Thorpe actually was, did work as a private eye. Um, ironically, uh, Joe Leland, the main character, is not actually a private eye in the book. Now, I know this will probably be different from the movie for you. Uh, he's an insurance investigator in the book. Um, oh. Yeah. And, and he was an ex-cop who left the force over the uh, the um, uh, the case which they portray in the movie as more or less the meat of the plot in the movie. Uh, so that's why it's a little strange. Um Huh. The um yeah the the movie is essentially all the the highlighted the, the Princess Bride esque highlighted good parts um, of the book. Um, it the book is very much a. I mean, I without having read a lot of sixties social realism character novels, I feel like that's what the book is. Um, uh, it's it's a it's very much about Joe Leland and his wife and their relationship and while while they don't emphasize it it's about him adapting because he's a world war ii veteran who shot down a bunch of he was an air ace actually um he shot down a bunch of nazi planes he's got this great track record in the war uh but while he was doing that his wife was off cheating on him and they couldn't really reconcile after the war when he came back home but they're still sort of together but also sort of not so a very similar relationship to what uh, John McClane has with his wife in Die Hard actually um, for different reasons um, but yeah the book is very very uh, it, it, it's it, it goes in it spends at least a hundred possibly 200 pages on Joe Leland and his wife and their relationship and it's crafted realistically i guess like it's done in a way that yeah i can believe this was a real relationship that these people had because she's portrayed as being uh somewhat having sort of mental issues essentially his wife uh you know she was he sort of hints that she's a nymphomaniac uh she just couldn't be alone so she had to cheat on but she still loves him and, and so it's very much in about their it, it's not a very pulpy novel at all um it's very much a quote literary novel unquote um but then the movie with uh sinatra is very much a you know it's focused on the procedural yeah, aspect it, of, the, it, of the case well which is, it was described as a neo-noir so it sort of feels like a 70s take on film noir. yeah it is it, it's it's a well 60s because even the movie was 68 oh yeah sorry sorry yeah and i i it's interesting because film wise that would have come Sort of right as like Bonnie and Clyde was in or uh, was in theaters the year before, um, so that was and that's often pointed to as a movie that started really blowing away uh, the conventions of film and and turning them into a new style. So you could almost argue that the 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 Sinatra movie is very 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 last gasp of the traditional film noir. You know, it's him in a fedora and uh, being a detective. Yeah, in some ways, it does have. Uh, um gay characters in it and yeah. um uh like not uh like very not clearly gay like explicitly called gay you know yeah not uh not subtly hinted at like in uh say the maltese falcon right um, peter laurie's well, character is go ahead sorry yeah peter laurie's character is hinted at to be gay right through various homophobic sort of um mm -hmm. uh innuendo yeah but in this they just the characters are gay um, now, uh, sorry, I actually just oh, want to we'll mention talk something about that. quick, yeah. just very quickly, uh, in the actual Raymond Chandler novels, uh, I've read a couple of them. Uh, he does actually like, he's not afraid to say, yeah, a character is gay in the novels. Uh, but it's just the mm -hmm. movies. You would never hear them say that. Basically. Yeah. Cause there was, there was code things and whatnot. Right. Right. It was an issue. And of course, Chandler always portrays it much as it's portrayed here actually as kind of. Oh, society! What society coming to? You know, it's it's a it's a it's not a you know it's homophobic. Unfortunately, um, it's and it, the movie struck me as as really dated in that regard. But right, it felt like its heart was in the right place. I don't know. Yeah, well, like there's a scene where go ahead. Sorry. There's a scene where um, a bunch of gay people are uh, uh, caught having public sex by the police, and one of the cops is really homophobic to them, and Leland is uh, mm -hmm. not happy with that. Right. Yeah. 
that well, that is getting into. I I think you had something else you wanted to talk about, but yeah, that is getting into the weird politics of both this and Nothing Lasts Forever, uh, because they're yeah. not written. They're not Mike Hammer, uh, you know, Mickey Spillane type books where we got to be, or or for a modern audience, Frank Miller, where you know you got to be the toughest of tough guys, and you know, ah, this this city is so corrupt, and blah blah blah, and I hate everyone. You know, it's all the immigrants and the and the, the homosexuals and the but like it's it's really it's really toxic toxic masculinity. He's fighting it in the book and in the movie as well. Like he, you can see, he's like trying to be a good guy and be like a, a if not a full on you know liberal guy, at least a you know not not a not a arch conservative reactionary guy at least. Yeah, there's a scene where one of the other cops uh, has strips a suspect naked, mm -hmm. and uh, when Leland asks him why, he says. Uh, it's a good technique to make them feel vulnerable. I saw it in a uh, uh, picture of German concentration camps, and that sets Leland off, and he, you know, threatens yeah. the cop. And yeah, um, yeah, that, that struck me as interesting. Yeah, both in both the book and the movie, they're very emphatic on the fact that Leland is like they they specifically talk about him in, in the, the detective being a Democrat, and then uh, in Nothing Lasts Forever, as you've mentioned, they talk about him hating Nixon. Um, yeah, they they call Nixon out. Yeah, so that's that's a thing. <laughs> well, but then uh, on the other hand, this was around the time that you know the two parties, the two political parties, were had a real uh, identity crisis as to what they represented. And so, being a Democrat doesn't necessarily mean he'd be this liberal guy either, right? Um, you know, you, yeah, the old school. But it was it was around the time when the Southern strategy was being first implemented, right? Right. The well, it was. It, yeah. Well, the first book was actually right around the time that you know the old school like. Essentially, um, uh, LBJ was to, to drastically oversimplify. LBJ lost the Southern Democrats, who had been like a reliable block, just like the South is, you know, more or less a reliable block for Republican vote for Republican politicians nowadays. It was always a, a reliable block for the Democrats uh, back up until that point. And LBJ was he actually did drag his feet a bit on things like the Civil Rights Act because. He knew he was going to lose these people. Uh, they they went ahead and did it anyway, and those people were picked up by the Republicans because of the Southern strategy. Um, so, but at the same time, which is a sort of um, dog whistling, not outright, uh, right? Not outright saying you know um, we're gonna we're gonna be for segregation or whatnot, but sort of um, subtly hinting at it with phrases like states' rights or force right. busing or that sort of thing. Yeah, as we've seen, it's been amplified in recent years where the, they just, the, the guy who was the campaign strategist went out and flat out said, yeah, well, we were trying to pick up all these racists in the South without act flat out saying it, uh, but we... we oh, we yeah, that, um, yeah, that campaign strat um, strategist, oh, what's his, uh, uh, Lee, uh, whatever, uh, Lee, Ant Lee Ant Atwater. Atwater, yeah. Um, yeah, he was recorded, um, and it, uh, he, uh, he didn't publicly admitted he didn't know that recording would be released to the public he thought it was a private thing right he actually said don't quote me on this before he says it yeah but they right they but released it, it anyway and, and, and there were other yeah there were actually other uh, republicans who, who mentioned it later as well and they were in yeah they said to they actually talked, spoke to journalists about it so it was a little more uh, more open later on but but i mean and yeah, i mean but now it's being decried as a conspiracy theory by right. republicans <laughs> yes well like, yes anyway but it but, clearly but, happens like but i mean if you know about the the, the 1968 democratic conference which i i'm not gonna i i don't know that much about but it was seen as this uh sort of breaking point where uh, the party was in huge turmoil, uh, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. So, I mean, right up till Nixon uh, was taken out of office, he was, it, it was sometimes seen as you could be a liberal Republican or a very conservative Democrat. Because even, even up to uh, the LBJ era, there were also like Northeastern Democrats and, and, and coastal Democrats who were, you know, essentially as we think of them today. Um, but they were, they were sort of, palling in with these the southern democrats who were the you know the the, the pre-civil war era thinkers basically so the, and on the other hand there was like the rockefeller republicans who were more on the liberal side of things right exactly and even nixon believe it or not he kind of people didn't know quite how to pin down nixon and you know he's he's pretty conservative but you know people thought you know like he's he he basically hinted that he was going to end the Vietnam War. So it was like, we'd, we'd associate that with, you know, oh, those warmongering Republicans. But 
you know, in Nixon's era, it was kind of like, no, it was the warmongering Democrats, because it really was the Democrats who started the Vietnam War, and I'm going to get us out of it, basically. And then he made it worse. But anyway. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the point is there was a lot of political turmoil at the time. Um, and both at the in the first book, uh, and then Nothing Lasts Forever is sort of coming out of the decade and a half of just absolute uh, chaos politically in America, or so it seemed to people at the time. Um, and it's interesting. And as we'll go ahead. Sorry, as we'll get to, uh, Die Hard came out at the end of the '80s, right? Which was firmly in Reaganite era, and right. it really reflects those themes in a lot of ways. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's actually it's very interesting because you can look at the detective, the book, the detective, the movie, Nothing Lasts Forever, and Die Hard, and they're all very much portraits of uh, a certain political era. And if it seems like we're talking about politics a lot, uh, believe me, the books, especially Nothing Lasts Forever, bring up the politics very strongly. Uh, they don't shy yeah. away from talking about the politics of the given the era that they're that they're in. Um, uh, the 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 first book, like I said, Detective has a certain placidity to it, even though it's noir. Like it does really talk about like oh, society is really crumbling, and like it really it lingers, especially in the early pages, on some brutal crimes on like a a kid who's been kidnapped and had horrible things done to her. Um, and, 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 and the central mystery of the, uh, the movie is a gay man who gets his penis cut off. Yes. It's a very brutal crime, uh, inflicted on uh, a guy in a, in a part of town that they paint as, you know, oh, this, this is the corrupt, horrible town, uh, part of town that, uh, and again, he's, he's got this, you know, he, both the Thorpe, the author and, Leland, the character, come at it from this very conflicted point of view, where you can tell they're, you know, they're trying to have a liberal viewpoint of that, but they're also like, but the scum is, you know, mucking up this part of town, and, you know, so so it's it's not what we would call very enlightened, but at the same time, he's trying to have a nice attitude, I guess, but, it, like, so, I mean, the, the... Yeah, sort of a weird balance between liberal and, like, full-on yeah. uh, taxi driver. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's got a. You can see the sort of seeds of taxi driver death wish. The whole seventies, uh, Dirty Harry. That the whole late sixties, seventies, uh, ultra macho uh, lone man. You know, it's associated Although with the, taxi driver. Is a criticism of that? Yeah, anyway. that's right. Yeah, well, the the mindset that, and I mean, death yeah. wish was originally as a book, uh, criticizing it as well, and then it became a book that uh, a movie that. That basically glorified that whole mindset as well of of the, yeah, the vigilante. Yeah. Oh, and a lot of people don't take the right messages from taxi drivers. So. Right, exactly. It's it's one of these things where, you know, to portray it, unfortunately, can end up glorifying it almost <laughs> without intending yeah. to. And uh, Scorsese is, of course, particularly focused on not necessarily you know condemning it, but it happens. It happens anyway. Um, but definitely, there is a period in pop culture where uh, lead, leading all the way into the 80s but in the late 60s and the 70s there's kind of a a, a righteous anger of oh, what's happening in our society and it's not necessarily coming from you know guys with you know insecure guys who want to wield guns at each other necessarily um, and that's portrayed in this book I think but then by the 80s it is literally just a cowboy fantasy of being able to gun down the bad guys, you know, the Reagan era. It's, you know, it, it's something Reagan probably tapped into to a certain extent as a politician, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting, like I say, because this is definitely a guy who kind of wants you to know that he's not a, a meathead, <laughs> a violent reactionary, you know, the bad guys. Um, six, the 66 novel, like I say, is it's got a very much, a, a almost a revolutionary road feel where it's, you know, the tragedy of people's, home lives as well as being a case but nothing lasts forever is a very very uh very tight book uh it's it's it, you know it gets right to the action it you know uh, we, we should talk about how it came to be first shouldn't we yeah yeah so um uh apparently in uh 75 roderick thorpe saw the towering inferno the charlton heston movie mm -hmm. uh um which is about a skyscraper that catches on fire and uh, that night he had a dream about a man being chased through a skyscraper by men with guns. And uh, he uh, decided that since um, they had made a movie out of The Detective, that uh, this you know pretty cool idea could be a sequel to that book so uh, that uh, Frank Sinatra could star in the sequel. 
<laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, um, that didn't come about. Frank Sinatra ended up turning it down quite early, mm-hmm. and it was shopped around uh, for ten years, almost ten years. Um, uh, Schwarzenegger turned it down. Sylvester Stallone turned it down, and finally Bruce Willis signed on. Right, and the rest is history because those two would have been not would have not worked for that movie. <laughs> well, I could did you or at least the movie that came to be right. Well, I, I could almost like he's see an, Stallone. The idea is he's sort of an everyman, and right. Schwarzenegger has played everyman before, but <laughs> no, not come well. On. Yeah, it's almost a joke in True Lies that he's just a regular everyman. Actually, it's it's almost more of a joke uh, in, uh, in Total Recall Total as Recall. well. Yeah. Like he's, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just a normal person living my life. What? <laughs> I'm an action hero. Who would have expected it? Um, Stallone. Yeah, it, it doesn't really like. I, I like Total Recall a lot, but yeah, like, yeah. The the idea that Schwarzenegger, this huge like Titanic man, is just a normal <laughs> construction worker, and he has to have you know special stuff done to him to make him into a spy is a little bit far fetched. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a Paul Verhoeven movie. He clearly knew it was a, like it, it, he he yeah. parodizes action movies, right? So that's essentially what yeah. he's doing. There. No, no, it's a very good movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just kind of funny. Yeah, but no, but I mean, he he knew that was a joke. I think when he did it, like I think he Fair knew enough. that yeah. was that was kind of ridiculous. And then you know, five years later, James Cameron did it with True Lies, and maybe he wasn't as aware of how ridiculous it was. So it's a little hard to say. Uh, but maybe he was. Who knows? Um, Anyway, but uh, I, Stallone could have pulled it off, though, the version of Die Hard that we got. Because he... he uh, yeah, fair enough, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's true that all through the 80s, he was this hardcore badass, you know, uber yeah, macho he was guy. Ran- he was Rocky as well. So. That's right. When he started off, he was basically the everyman figure who who could, you know, rise to great heights. So if he had had no, no career between Rocky and the late 80s he could have done die hard because he's his his mindset would have been uh, we would have seen him as just the regular guy trying to make good basically but um mm-hmm. and but Br- bruce willis really uh makes the movie I oh think. of course yeah him and, uh, and alan rickman and another right you know the director obviously but um bruce willis is a big part of why that movie works right and it's important to remember bruce willis that i believe was his first real big movie breakthrough like he was on moonlighting yeah he was on tv right but and and moonlighting, I mean, sure, he's you know he's a bit of a that's kind of got a noir aspect to it as well. But it's a TV show and it's very heavy on the romance and stuff. So it was a little bit. It, I'm not going to say it was shocking to see Bruce Willis do an action movie in 1988, but it wasn't. You know, he the fact that there was a there was a uh, contrast between him and Arnold Schwarzenegger is part of what makes the movie work. It's funny because we you know looking back on it, it feels like an 80s meathead action movie, but it was actually an attempt to kind of move away from meathead 80s action movies at the time. Um, yeah, he's very, um, uh, intros- well, not introspective. He's very motor-mouthed, I guess. Right. He's talking about his feelings all the time. Yeah, and he's... You know, what he's going through. Right, and he's a... And the book know, actually he, is sort of not like that in some ways. Like, he, he he's very um, uh, methodical in the book, but we hear his inner monologue. Yeah, just... Uh, let, let, well, so, having said that, let's go back to the book for a second. Um, in Nothing Lasts Forever, it's... Uh, he's, he's... Joe Leland has... Uh, he's not a cop. Uh, he's um, he's now been a, a le- police consultant. Yeah, he's he left the force in the detective. He wasn't even on the force in the detective. Uh, he was an insurance investigator. Now he's a consultant. He actually goes to like uh, security conferences and stuff. He's a security expert, basically. Uh, yeah, so- and uh, anti even anti terrorism stuff. Right uh, in the book, he actually knows who. Uh- Gruber is when right he sees him right because he's been to he recognizes him from and, a from a lecture yeah right and Gruber is a known uh, international terrorist uh, he's oh it's uh, it's Tony Gruber right little Tony the Red uh, is the character in the book uh, he's and and it should be noted one of the it's funny what reading the book how it actually does adhere or the movie does adhere to the book very closely in some ways uh, all the big set pieces you can think of from the book or for the movie, are in the book. Uh, but there are a couple of very major changes, and one of them is that the terrorists are actually terrorists in the book. They're not pretending to be terrorists to, to break into this vault. And they actually have a pretty strong point. Yeah, that's... But we'll get to that later. Well, that's... Yeah, exactly it. Uh, um, that's... Uh, no, I, let's talk about it right now, because, um, uh, again, in, in the book has kind of a sour feeling in some ways. Uh, again, as I said, you, 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 you have the sense of a guy who... You know, you read the detective, and it's a guy who's trying to be a good man in a harsh world, and uh, you get to 
nothing lasts forever and it's kind of like ah american society is crumbling everything's going to hell you know and that and you know he he holds up nixon he holds up you know authoritarian jerkwads and you know police corruption and things so he's not he's not doing this as a as a you know right wing reactionary vigilante thing uh but he does have this you know he he's very much uh plays up the idea that, oh yeah, these terrorists and, and anarchists are everywhere and they're going to take over and destroy our society. It, it's important to remember in the 70s, there were a couple of big, um, well, there were a number of different things, but there was a big terrorist, uh, there were a couple of big terrorist attacks and I, terror cells, I, I guess, became a little more common t in the American psyche, uh, starting with probably the weather underground. I think one of the things that uh, they were probably drawing on for this was uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, who are the people who kidnapped Patty Hearst. Uh, are you familiar with that? Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, I didn't know their name, but yeah. Actually, they were a, a group of, um, uh, th they were supposedly, you know, uh, kind of a very, very militant uh, black liberation group. But by the time uh, they started becoming radicalized and doing really uh, brutal stuff, they, they only had one black member who was the leader and everyone else was white and a lot of them were women. Um, and uh, they kidnapped Patty Hearst, who was the, uh, the heir to the William Randolph Hearst uh, family. And they, they tortured her. They did some really bad stuff to her. Um, but she came out of it with Stockholm syndrome and basically joined their group uh, and started helping them rob banks and, and commit crimes. Um, so I think it wasn't just the fact that there was this, and the, and the Symbionese, uh, the SLA killed some people, uh, interesting, by the way, side note, uh, somewhat tying into some of our other uh, stuff, including the stuff we might be doing in the next, uh, episode, uh, they had a, Intent. um, they had a, they had a symbol, uh, that was a seven headed cobra. Oddly enough, they used, it was based on the principles of Kwanzaa. Uh, because the Swahili, they have these Swahili principles that are that are of which there are seven, um, and um, it was he he called it. Um, let's see what it says here. It, he they claim that it was copied from the ancient Sri Lankan and Indian seven-headed Naga carved stones depicting a seven-headed cobra, commonly found near sluices of the ancient irrigation tanks in Sri Lanka. Uh, this particular graphic of the seven-headed cobra used by the SLA may have been copied from an illustration in a book called The Lost Continent of Mu by James Churchward. So they had kind of a mystical, and, a, you know, we have this uh, pseudoscience lost continent stuff bubbling up <laughs> in a way you yeah. wouldn't expect to see even in the in the 70s, basically. Um, but anyway, that this whole... But yeah, that, that does fit because there are a number of women or young women in uh, the terrorist group in the book. Right, and nothing lasts forever. Yes, well, that's so, yeah, definitely. That does yeah. make sense. I, I feel like that's what they were thinking of, and and I mean, they created some really brutal crimes. Like it's it's possible to be somewhat to understand where they're coming from. This this group, uh, you know, they they were trying to end U.S. imperialism. They felt that you know that uh, like many groups at the time, they felt that you know black people were oppressed and had to be freed. Uh, you know, we had to rise up against the oppressive, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy. Uh, but they were really brutal. And the guy, their leader was a guy who'd escaped from prison and was using it as an excuse to sort of rape and murder. And um, and and I think there was a feeling of that this was a really senseless, uh, brutal cadre of terrorists and whatever their motivations, people didn't have a lot of sympathy for them. It was, they were just a bunch of radical, you know, nihilists running amok who wanted to commit actions. So that's probably what inspired the characters in Nothing Lasts Forever, I think, more than it, the, the terrorists. Uh, you know, regard, you know, Leland's kind of a guy who, you know, he can be sympathetic to the dispossessed, but these are just monsters who want it, who are using it as an excuse to commit acts of violence, basically. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I, that's definitely where that came out of. So there's a number of stuff that gets brought up uh, politically throughout the book. The other big thing and this is a change from the the, the, mo the movie change from the book. Um, it, it's set not in Nak the Nakatomi building, but the Klaxon Oil building, um, which is uh, you know clearly meant to be Exxon. Uh, yeah, uh, Marvel also thing. Marvel uh, at least the MCU has uh, Roxxon. Roxxon is a recurring thing. Yeah, exactly, and it's I mean. Obviously, they don't want to get sued, but <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, they, I mean, and they're very. The book just flatly goes out and says, "You're doing business with the military junta in Chile, which would have been Augusto Pinochet's uh, uh, junta, uh, which is yep. still 
beloved by some people on the right, but it was just blatantly a group of, you know, uh, people who, you know, were willing to do business with monsters uh, to make some money. And he, he very squarely pins the blame on these people and says, these are evil, this is a really evil corporation, and here's why, because they're doing this. And it's barely fictional at Including that his daughter. Yes. Uh, his daughter, who is the executive. Oh, it's his daughter, not his wife in the book. Right. Because his wife was dead by this point. That's right. That's the other change. Um, in, instead of his uh, wife being held hostage by the terrorists, it's his daughter. And he makes her much more culpable for the crimes of what's going on uh, that the terrorists are, are responding to. I mentioned that the terrorists are not very sympathetic in the book, but they really he really does not hesitate to hold this company uh, responsible for the kind of chaos that is being caused uh, by these terrorists. And he says, my daughter is working in this company and she's been part of it. She is negotiating deals with evil, you know, regimes around the world. What am I to think of that, basically? Um, yeah. And um, he also, uh, at the end, or just before the end, actually... Uh, takes the money that uh, that uh, Klaxon has gotten from this deal and throws it out the window. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's 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 a a bit of a snake Pliskin moment actually, um, where it just is like, I saved everyone, but fuck you, I'm gonna <laughs> throw this out the yeah. window. You know, uh, I'll have to bleep that. And and he he uh, intentionally uh, does it so that he can't be seen, so that even if they know it was him, they can't prove it. Mm-hmm. And even that imagery is essentially in the movie because it's bearer bonds rather than actual money in the movie. But um, they, you know, if you remember the final scene or two in the movie is these, all the, the bearer bonds fluttering down, all, you know, carpeting the streets as everyone mills around. Um, and that, but it wasn't John McClane who threw them out. That's, no, it wasn't. But, that's a big difference. Yeah, but they're going for that imagery, basically, of like yeah. this, this money. But of course, in the movie, it doesn't have any symbolic impact <laughs> because they haven't explicitly linked you know what nakatomi they haven't they haven't accused nakatomi of doing anything evil they've they've focused very heavily on just it being a, a straightforward action movie more or less what what do you think about that phil what do you think about the fact that the movie is you know very um i think uh i think if they included some of the stuff from the book in the movie it would have made it more muddled the movie really works as a straightforward action movie mm -hmm. um yeah, I, so I mean, it's basically a perfect little action thing. Yeah, no, it's like, it's, it's very it's true. Very, like it does what it needs to do, you know. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. Like it's a very, I mean, it's not like the book is bloated either. Uh, but the 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 movie is very very, uh, you know, it, it's true that straightforward. Yeah, it's it's very straightforward. Um, it's a good. It's it's actually a great example of how when we people say, oh, take politics out of it. Um, that you're not really taking politics out of it. You're just uh, reaffirming a certain baseline politics, essentially, uh, because the end result is that the movie is more effectively conservative in its outlook. Um, yeah. Without being like overtly, you know, over the top about it. But the, but the book, but does... it's very uh, sort of Reaganite and very like one man taking responsibility for his family. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's sort of, well, there are all these, jerk ass cops and jerk ass federal agents in the in the movie but there it's kind of like yeah the government the, it's the government you know it's yeah it's the bureaucrats the, the bureaucrats yeah exactly the red tape yeah Dwayne Dwayne Robinson who's the character in both the book and the movie that's his name in both right yeah 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 um the um the deputy uh police chief deputy police chief who is of course famously um you know he's the one who He's he's the chief who he's not literally uh, John McClane's boss, but he's the he fills the role of the chief that that, that has to say, "Damn it, McClane, you're a loose cannon. You're causing all these problems." <laughs> yeah. You know, he he does that role essentially. And and uh, um, whereas the in the book, he his ending is much heart. I mean, um, in the book, ends with the same thing with Carl, the terrorist uh, attacking um, the main character, mm -hmm. and uh, Al Powell, the cop who's younger in the book, mm -hmm. uh, shooting him. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the book, uh, Powell, uh, Powell actually sh shoves his uh, commanding officer in front of the hail of bullets first. Right. Yeah, that's right. He dies in the book, uh, Dwayne Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I was surprised that that moment, because it's such a, a silly 80s action movie moment where the guy comes bursting out of the building after a, you think everything's over, but no, I'm still alive and I'm here to get you. Um, and uh, so there's a big dramatic moment. And But that is in the book. 
Uh, and it's there mostly so Dwayne Robinson could get killed because he's such a huge <laughs> in the in both the book and the movie. But in the movie, it's all yeah. it's it's a little bit it's a little bit contrived in the movie, I think, because like at one point he's trying to say, "Oh, there's no terrorists. It's everything's okay." And Al Powell goes, "But a body fell out the window." Oh yeah, they they take they take way too long to admit that there's a problem. Yeah, and he goes, ah, oh, it's some stockbroker who got depressed, which is one of the things that's always made me go, I'm not sure I can really buy into this movie. <laughs> no, anyway, uh, but yeah, Dwayne, he's 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 more described in the book as just being a bureaucrat who's worried about his career, whereas in the movie he's just kind of a dick for no reason. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, well, in the, in the book also he's... Uh... He's lumped in with Nixon as one of the reasons for why society's crumbling. So. Right, exactly. Um, it's it's. Uh, it says they were spoilers of society as much as the little Tony, as much as all the little Tonys who had ever lived. Right. With Richard Nixon at the top of the list, because of them, civilization ceased to well, etc. Yeah, yeah. So, like I say, the the book is, and it shows how if you just take it out a bit and rejigger it a bit, it becomes a very reactionary story. Uh, but Thorpe is very eager not to play that game, basically. He's trying to... He's eager to... Uh, there's also an implication that uh, that uh, Leland is doing the wrong thing. You know, his whole uh, campaign to take out the terrorists might have caused things to get worse than they would have been otherwise. Um... Sort of at the end, just a little bit. Like he, he muses that if he had just stayed on, you know, stayed on his flight, or that uh, his um, his uh, limo breaking down was a sign that he should have not come here. That sort of thing. It's true, but I I don't know. I I mean, it's... a little bit of like it's not fully, but, but it, it's there's a little bit of a hint there that maybe he's well, I, not. I mean, it's hard not to really get... in the right here. It, 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 it I mean. As I say, he he's very much like, oh yeah, society's got all kinds of mess. His attitude is pretty clearly politically that, you know, there's all these bureaucrats and there's all these jerks and they're dragging everyone down and trying to hurt everyone. And that it's their fault that people push back and become these, you know, psychotic nihilists. Um, and so he, but he doesn't like the psychotic nihilists, but he's pinning their evolution or the fact that they've, uh, they've evolved, they've come out of society on people like that rather than just saying oh it's all these crazy nihilists and who knows what they want like he does briefly talk about well you know they're 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 responding to some of the oppression and and inequality in society but then they put you know psychos in charge and he it's very clear that uh, gruber tony gruber in the book uh he likes to just kill people he's not doing it because he's you know he's, yeah he has a signature move where he uh, what was it? Pinning on the black, the black boutonniere. I yeah. can't. The red. Or, yeah, yeah, the where black he boutonniere. Where he adjusts somebody's tie and then shoots them in the chest. Yeah, or in the lapel. Them, shoots them through the lapel, so they 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 get a black, a, a red flower on their chest, basically the black boutonniere. Uh, yeah. But you know, and he he makes it really like yeah. But this guy's just a psycho. It just, his ideology is almost beside the point. He's just he's you know he's a he's a little Stalin basically where. Yeah, I'm fighting for freedom, but I also like to just kill people, basically. Um, mm. But but when we talk about, oh yeah, it would have been better if uh, he had stayed home. That is a really interesting idea. Uh, you know, what if the it's the same thing people say about Indiana Jones. You know, what if he hadn't hadn't gone anywhere? <laughs> like, what he if he hadn't participated in this at all, would the would everything have been okay? But in this case, like I, it's very clear that Gruber would have started just killing people. Like he, he would have. Yeah, but I mean, his daughter dies anyway. In the book. It's true, but I mean, to me, the that's a big is, change, yeah. by the way. The uh, yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Spoiler. I'll just describe the scene. It's sorry. No, it's okay. No, no. We already no, said okay. the ending. We, we're gonna, we're going to talk um, about the book, so we're going to spoil it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's much like the movie scene where um, where Gruber is holding uh, uh, it's Holly in the movie, I think, mm -hmm. um, hostage, and John McClane ends up saving her. Um, by because he has a gun taped to his back, right? And, um, and the gun taped uh, to his back is in, in the, the book, by the way. That that yeah, whole scene in is the book. basically as written in the book. Except um, uh, McLean manages to reach her when when uh, Gruber tries to drag her down with him, right? And uh, in the book, he doesn't make it, and she just falls, right? He actually specifically says in the book, uh, you know, Stephanie. Her name's Stephanie, and as I say, as as we say, it's his daughter. Um, he says, Stephanie, move, but she doesn't move fast enough. So he shoots Gruber, and Gruber's able to grab hold of her and 
throw them both off the building. So his daughter dies. Um, whereas in the movie, they specifically, she does move when he says move, or he, he makes the, the indication that she should move basically. And she moves and that gets, gets her far enough away from him that he can shoot him and he goes over the side. So, um, and that honestly, that, that is a good change for the movie. Like there's no reason to end the book on such a down note to me. (laughs) I don't know. Well, I mean, there's also the implication that he might die from his injuries in the book. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of pretty strong. He's taken so much of a hit. Um, yeah. Like he walks through glass and all the stuff in the movie, mm -hmm. but, uh, He seems to be in much worse shape than Bruce Willis was at the end of that thing. Well, yeah, Leland is uh, older than McLean. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Leland is uh, in his, what, late 50s at that point? He fought in World War II. I think so, yeah. He fought in World War II, so he would have had to have been at least in his 50s, late 50s. Um, And he does talk about how, oh, yeah, I'm in good shape for an old guy. Um, And, of course, again, he wrote that with the intention that Frank Sinatra would play the character. Um, so, you know, you kind of assume, you know, Sinatra would have been at, if not older, uh, at that scene. So again, it's almost, and you do have to admire Die Hard, the movie, even as it was made, um, you know, Bruce Willis never does anything, you know, superhuman in that movie, right? It's all stuff that a reasonably, you know, in shape guy could do, right? He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't do any karate kicks. He dangles over some ledges and she, he has to you know, flip himself into from some heights. Those are the big stunts that he did. And he gets into a big fight with Carl uh, at one point. Uh, but it's all... Yeah, I mean, he's he's competent, but not superhuman. Right. Unlike what the sequels look like, which <laughs> I haven't seen any of the Die Hard sequels. I'm, I don't think they should exist. Yeah, I, uh, I don't remember I in mean, part two if he's a, you know, a, a super kung fu guy. Uh, but he's... Uh, he, there's some pretty outrageous stuff in part two, for sure. Uh, part three was generally lauded for going back to vaguely plausible and also having a plausible reason to happen. Whereas the second one is just, oh, and he stumbles into some more terrorists. Like, oh, come on. Like, twice in a row. Oh, yeah. and, and the third... I saw a sketch from the uh, the Ben Stiller show uh, of Die Hard in a, in a grocery store or, right. or a convenience store or something. I can't remember what it was. But, uh, yeah, he, he turns to the camera and says, how can the same thing keep happening to one guy? Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's what um, that was. That was the mockery of the second one, all throughout. The, yeah, but I saw the trailers for some of the later ones, and yeah, like he's ju- you know jumping oh, up yeah. and like they they have glass on the floor and it doesn't seem to bother him anymore. <laughs> right. No the the third one is uh, like the third one is the only sequel that's really any worthwhile because it's I don't think there's anything insanely impossible in that one either. Maybe a little bit, but not again within range of what a human being could do but they also find a reason for it to be john mcclain and not just he just doesn't stumble into something it's he's specifically drawn in because of what he's gone through in the previous books so or the previous movies but yeah i mean like uh the fourth one was like you know he's he's causing cars to flip into helicopters and it's just nonsense yeah and it's exactly the opposite of again that's what Die Hard was actually meant to be pushing back against to a degree it still doesn't look anywhere near like by a modern, to modernize, it still seems like an overbloated, you know, 80s action movie. But they were definitely trying to, like, rain, ramp it down a bit from Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, when they made the movie. Yeah. That was, that was part of the point. Um, so, uh, but anyway, it's, 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 the book is, just one last thing about the book. Like, like I said, there's a very, there's a very. Oh, I had something about Al Powell, but. It's mostly a movie thing. Yeah, well, he's he's aged up in the movie, oddly. Yeah, he's and he's played by uh, Carl Winslow right. from Family Matters. Rachel Val Johnson. Uh, yes. That's what I knew him as when I saw the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's uh, uh, and he's a cop there too. Yeah. So well, in in that, that amused me. And he's in the book. He's but, very explicitly. Oh, he's the you know he's the ally. There, <laughs> actually, I kind of want to talk about Taco Bill too in the book. Um, Oh yeah, what was his deal? <laughs> well, I didn't quite understand what was going well, on. Well, it, it was kind of he's meant to sort of represent. I think oh, there's an, a free American spirit out there. So basically, a, in the book, a radio uh, ham radio operator named who calls himself Taco Bill uh, hacks in. Who can't say why he's called that because there might be children. <laughs> that's what he. That's what he says. Yeah, and uh, yeah. He, he's able to basically. That's I, I believe. Uh, that's the first guy McLean's able or Leland's able to reach on the um, uh, the CB 
uh, as opposed to in the movie where he's able to get a hold of a. a, a, a uh, no, I think Taco oh. Bill was later. Oh, well, I think he did talk to Powell first. I'm not sure. Well, he's I think so. he's he's able to listen in on their CB basically, and he's not, and he's he helps them a little. He helps them a little, I think, but he's mostly just a guy who keeps. He's he's some kind of weirdo cowboy who keeps coming in. All right, brother, we're all rooting for you here. And and Leland even kind of says, you know, hey, Bill, you should shut up. You're just making things worse. Yeah. <laughs> but but he is sort of meant to be a you know a morale booster. They basically combine him into Al Powell in the movie. Um, he's and also uh, to a lesser degree Argyle, the limo driver. Right, Argyle, the limo driver. There is a limo driver in the book, but he's barely anything. That's right. There's a scene with I think a limo he's described driver as in black the book. as well, but yeah. Yeah, there's a scene with a limo driver in the book that he encounters a limo driver uh, it, during a changeover flight before he arrives in Los Angeles, and they have a whole. He pulls a gun on a guy uh, who is threatening the limo driver, which is kind of over the top. Uh, in the movie, he gets turned into something who's actually relevant to the plot in the movie, which was actually yeah well done and again it was kind of he's kind of there to show that joe leland's a good guy and he respects the working class guy and a black guy who's in his you know but al al powell in the book is a um oh yeah there's a line in the book which was well-meaning but geez where he said uh like most black people he had a gift of speech or something like that yeah he's he's you know was, it's a 70s weird. old guy few of things yeah. but again trying to Fair be enough. enlightened and decent but you know not not being able to stop being an old an old guy <laughs> from <laughs> 30 years ago um and and it is interesting because al powell in the book is more he's actually more of a character in the movie uh everything is very much from the point of view of uh leland he you know you never cut away from leland to see what the cops are talking about on the ground you only hear them through the cb um and powell is very much the Oh, here's one sane, decent human being in the world who can help me. Uh, and he's a young cop, and it's it's I guess because he's young and he's black, he's not part of the corrupt police system as much as everyone else is the implication, basically. Uh, whereas he's much more of a fallible human being in the movie, essentially. He's the, he's still in the the subplot where he shot a kid, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, just... that did not play. Watching it, I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> That's not a yeah. great, uh, not a great. And his, look. his and, arc is learning to shoot somebody. Yeah, again. His, yeah. yeah exactly. But uh, you know, it's like it was good that he was a desk jockey and his wife was pregnant. You know, that was a good place for him to be. Anyway, mm. um, but I think uh, so. I think we're uh, hitting the uh, the limits here of where we're at. Um, but anyway, any final thoughts uh, there? Uh, uh, yeah, it was. Um, I, I'm. This isn't something I'd normally read because it's way out of genres i'm usually interested in mm -hmm. but i i have liked die hard for a while and uh it's an interesting companion piece i don't know if it's better or worse than the movie it just it's interesting if you like the movie i think it's worth reading just to get a different perspective on it. yeah it, it is really interesting how like usually when hollywood gets hold of a book like this they'll make all kinds of changes and this is yeah there's some major changes but like, all the big beats are here, and all the main sort of plot is here, yeah, essentially. tying a hose around him to jump yeah, off a building. crawling into the vent, that, yeah. uh, blowing stuff up, um, you know. Well, blowing oh, stuff yeah, up. the vent thing in the... Yeah. It was, uh, uh, remember The Middleman, the TV show? I never saw it, no. Okay, well, there was a, there was a joke that there were Nakatomi, Nakatomi laws, uh, <laughs> that uh, all buildings had to have man-shaped, man-sized vents. Right. <laughs> Uh, and uh, they said it was based on their real-life events that inspired the movie Die so. <laughs> Well, that's what the book is, apparently. It was Joe Leland yeah. in real life. Um, no, and, and uh, I let, well, yes, we should comment on the fact that uh, in the book he says Geronimo, mother <laughs> whereas Yeah, which is said in the movie, but it's very downplayed. He says it before he drops a bomb, but nobody remembers that because of Yippee-ki-yay, mother right. which is that's... a big line and is, of course, repeated later by, uh, by Hans Gruber. Right. Yeah, it's it's and it's true to the it's true to the uh, the book in a sense, but it's not actually in the book, um, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And also, some um, of uh, Bruce Willis uh, talking to himself, like I said earlier, in the book, Leland is very uh, um, methodical. Mm -hmm. He doesn't talk much. Oh, oh, there's a like uh, I have a machine gun. Yes, uh, ho, ho, that's ho, right. In the movie, the, that's whole scene. Uh, in the book, it was we have a machine gun now. Right. He, um, because he was trying to make them think that uh, there were more than one of him 
around. Right, he was trying to throw them off. It doesn't write ho ho ho, but I mean that that scene is really very close to the book. That's the that's the funny yep. thing. I wasn't expect that seems like such an eighties action movie scene. I wasn't expecting it to be in the book, but it is. Um, uh, so yeah, that's a good example. They changed, they tweaked the details a little, but it really is uh, in some ways a very faithful adaptation of of the of the book. Um, oh, uh, one more thing: Canadian connections. In the detective, at least the movie, uh, mm-hmm. the uh, person who Leland sends away to uh, the electric chair for the murder mm-hmm. uh, is Canadian. Yeah, in it the turns book out as well. he's innocent. That's part. Yeah, he's uh, he's from Toronto. So, hooray! I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, in the uh, in Die Hard, uh, one of the uh, terrorist groups that Hans Gruber uh, pretends that he wants released were from the uh, were from a. Uh, Quebecois separatist group. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The I don't remember if they were actually the Fond de Libération de Quebec, but they're the yeah they're, they're yeah a Quebec terrorist. Clearly group. based on that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so there you go. There are some Canadian connections to Die Hard. <laughs> anyway, just so just a just a word of caution. Like I say, I really did not care for the detective. It was a very uh, navel gazing book that I don't think has a lot of appeal to anyone. Whereas Nothing Lasts Forever is a real breezy read it, it if you enjoy die hard absolutely <laughs> read uh, nothing lasts forever oh and it says the ending of the detective in the first couple chapters that's right yeah he basically not reveals missing anything the, that's right you know in the chat in the first chapter too he just basically explains the plot of the detective all the all the stuff that happens because i i i have to admit i stopped reading the detective at page 400 and then i was just reading the end of the detective I'm like or reading the first chapter two of nothing lasts forever i'm like okay well now i know what happened <laughs> <laughs> So, as the sun sets over Los Angeles, uh, and we've decided there are no more worlds to conquer, so I'm uh, Lieutenant Adam Prosser, the chief who's been stuck behind a desk too long and who's forgotten what it's like on the streets. And as always, with me is Phil Rice, a loose cannon who gets results, damn it! Thanks, as always, to Alex Ross. You're off the case! (laughs) You're off the... No, that's the wrong one. Never mind. (laughs) Well, he would be off the Uh... case if they'd put him on the case (laughs) in the first place. So thanks as always to uh, Alex Ross, head of Klaxon Oil, and the theme song was by pirate radio broadcaster Jack Furick. Um, just a reminder uh, if, to anyone listening to this, uh, TCAF in Toronto is coming up, uh, and Phil and I will be there, although I, we're not going to have a table, but uh, some of our contributors to Strange Romance will have tables. I believe Melissa Capriglione is going to have a table. Uh, so watch for us if you're in Toronto uh, in the first weekend of May. Uh, We'll be there. Yep. And uh, check out uh, our comics as always online on Comixology uh, under Fantasmic Tales. Uh, You can also check out Phil's The Apex Society, Undead, Halloween Girl, and various uh, other things. Undeath, and that's just an arc in The Apex Society. We'll keep going over this. (laughs) I know, I know, but let's say Undeath. It it does have a different name, so we're going to call that. Yeah. We're going to call it Undeath. Okay, so The Apex Society. Anything else you want to plug, Phil? Um, nope. We're good. Okay. So to all the modern cowboys out there fighting corruption and the death of the American dream, thanks and a Merry Christmas to all.